Okay. Thank you so much. Um, uh, first to uh, the Reverend Dr. Liz Carmichael uh, for inviting me um, to speak to the conference and to my good friend, uh, Dr. Isabella Bunn, for uh, encouraging uh, Liz Carmichael to invite me. Um, and thanks, uh, Professor Kaplan, for the kind introduction. Um, to say that um, the Right Reverend Dr. Rowan Williams is a tough act to follow <laughs> is a modest statement of what you call in these parts British understatement. Um, but uh, I just appreciate your um, extraordinarily um, insightful presentation. And I think of you, as I'm sure everybody in the room and beyond does, as the distilled essence of knowledge and wisdom. Really deeply appreciate your comments and humbled to follow you, uh, as I'm sure we all have to have listened to you. So thank you. Um, so I am indeed going to take a different tack here. Um, uh, although, like um, uh, Rowan Williams, coming um, at it initially from an historical perspective, maybe drawing just a bit on uh, having uh, earned a history degree down the road here just a, just a few years ago. Um, but I'm gonna go light on the history until we get to uh, the last several decades. Um, and I'll get into it a little more deeply then. But um, like Rowan Williams, I also divide my presentation into three parts uh, to support the fundamental proposition that economic actors, business, and especially multinational corporations are not only intertwined with war and peace, with conflict, with the drivers, impacts, and consequences of conflict, but also can, should, and indeed must be conscious, responsible, and accountable actors in the world of peace and conflict. I, I worry too much often that we view these vast impersonal forces and actors and huge multinational corporations and the billions of, uh, of pounds and euros and dollars and yen um, uh, behind them uh, is impenetrable. Uh, and I, I really want to challenge that default assumption by talking about um, efforts in recent decades, but very specifically what many of us are up to now over the last year in trying to accelerate and to complete uh, the exit uh, of Western companies from Russia following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So I'll first give a historical perspective of some antecedents or precedents um, from recent decades that take us to this uh, moment that has really crystallized um, uh, the debate around the responsibilities of multinational corporations in the conflict arena, and I hope galvanized action. Uh, and then second, I'll talk about some of the issues and dilemmas um, that multinational corporations uh, are dealing with as some are trying to get out of Russia, those that have not, and some of the dilemmas that we on the side of those who engage, try to persuade, cajole, and at times confront companies have to think about ourselves from a human rights perspective. Uh, and then finally, I'll try to draw out very quickly some of the 
lessons, imp uh, consequences, and further implications of what we've seen in recent months for a broader notion of what I call, I hope not too grandly um, uh, or naively, uh, what could be a new idea of geopolitical corporate responsibility. So first, back to the history um, and uh, to make a sweeping comment that uh, merely condenses two millennia of, of human experience in just a few sentences before we get to the middle of the 20th century. But it's a statement of, of fact, but one that we is, the volumes have been written about, that the world of commerce and trade of capital and labor have been intertwined with war and peace, with conflict since the ancient world. Um, fast forward through uh, ancient, from ancient slavery to the structures and strictures of medieval uh, feudalism, um, which I studied down the road uh, while doing supposedly modern history. Um, uh, and fast forward then even to the 18th century and beyond the rise of the East India Company and the emergence of multinational corporations as um, agents, uh, instruments um, of imperialism, colonialism, expansionism, and not just the British empires, but of others. Uh, and the whole tragic uh, history of, of slavery and uh, the deep, deep, deep complicity of uh, private actors, business actors um, that help build and enrich, um, but also morally diminish this great country and so many others, including my own, uh, with the transatlantic slave trade and uh, finally a reckoning on both sides of the Atlantic about that tragic um, legacy uh, that uh, is still with us in the 21st century. Um, but then to fast forward again uh, to five um, pivot points in the last eight decades, uh, uh, actually four in the last eight decades that really set the stage for the actions and dilemmas that we've seen as companies um, have exited again incompletely uh, from Russia in the last uh, 14 months since Putin's invasion. Uh, of Ukraine. So I want to start first with an area that I um, spent two years working on day and night on behalf of the U.S. State Department in the mid-1990s, and that was the uh, deep complicity uh, of business in Nazi Germany and especially in the Holocaust. And, and historians have written for decades about uh, German big business aiding and abetting Hitler's rise to power. Uh, we didn't understand very well until the mid to late 1990s when there was a, a global movement um, with the U.S. and U.K. governments at the, tips of the at the tip of the spear uh, to come to grips with the then previously hidden financial and economic dimensions of the Holocaust. And you'll recall uh, in that period of the mid to late 90s the intense focus on the Swiss banks, their icy indifference to uh, Holocaust survivors, victims, families who were unable to access dormant accounts after decades. The focus on the huge German industrial companies uh, willingly employing slave labor of Jews, of Soviet uh, prisoners, of Roma, of homosexual gay people, uh, 
other uh, marginalized people, political dissidents, if they weren't killed in the concentration camps, they were worked to death in the slave factories. So we had a huge reckoning around that uh, in, in finally in the, in the 1990s, and we still read uh, every month or two about um, the restitution of Nazi looted art. Um, this is a continuing saga uh, from the 1940s. And then that takes us to the 1970s and 80s to the, the second um, major antecedent. And I'm looking at Liz Carmichael, who I've just had the pleasure of getting to know since yesterday and knowing of her extraordinary work, um, uh, first as a doctor and then as a conciliator, peace builder in apartheid South Africa, um, of the anti-apartheid movement, um, which arose uh, in the mid to late 1970s. I recall it well uh, in my undergraduate days at Berkeley uh, in the late 70s and then here again um, a couple years later. Uh, and that was the most extraordinary example we've seen of companies consciously exiting uh, a, a racist authoritarian state under tremendous pressure from activists and clergy and, and responsible investors in their very early initial stages. Um, and that uh, and Man Nelson Mandela credited, uh, as did um, Bishop Tutu, that exodus of Western companies of having exerted political and moral as well as economic and financial pressure on the apartheid regime. Um, that then takes us to the next um, uh, antecedent or precedent, which played out in the early to mid uh, 2000s, uh, and that was the genocide, uh, at least as the US government uh, called it in Darfur, and the international attention uh, on those atrocities and killings uh, in, in Darfur, and the divestment movement, which was largely but not entirely an American agenda. Uh, that uh, took substantial assets out of companies, particularly oil and infrastructure companies, that were supporting the regime in Khartoum. Uh, that was the biggest exercise we had seen of divestment, at least the United States, since the apartheid, anti-apartheid divestment movement of the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Uh, and it's one now that is on many of our minds uh, in recent days for obvious reasons as we see this these terrible civilian casualties and the promise we had hoped two years ago of a democratic transition in Sudan dashed by uh, this uh, internecine conflict um, within, within the military. And then finally, that takes us to uh, the Russian invasion, Putin's invasion um, of Ukraine. And much of, and which really now is the second part of, of my uh, presentation, and much of the focus um, in the media and the public policy discourse has uh, appropriately focused on this massive wall of economic and financial sanctions developed by and imposed by the US, the UK, the EU, coordination through the G7, uh, and uh, those sanctions were regime, that sanctions regime was under development beginning in the autumn um, of 2021 in anticipation uh, based on US intelligence in particular of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which of course happened on the 24th of February, 2022. 
And those sanctions were imposed, some within hours, others days, weeks, and continue to mount. The less visible and well-understood dimension of this financial and economic uh, uh, prong, if you will, of the conflict is the exit of foreign companies, um, mostly European, UK, North American, uh, US, Canadian, some from Japan, Australia. And the numbers um, are significant. It's actually the largest exodus that we've seen companies from a conflict situation or, or based on any principles whatsoever since that massive exodus uh, from apartheid South Africa in the late 70s to mid-1980s. Um, what's been striking about this exodus is that it began to happen within 72 or 96 hours after the invasion with the initial announcements uh, that uh, last weekend of February last year by Shell and BP in anticipation of sanctions against the oil and gas sector. And that became um, the basis really of a, uh, a, a, a parade out, um, not only from the oil and gas sector, but from other sectors as well. And to be frank, um, I think there was a lot of, um, I don't want to be so crude, of course, as to suggest that it was PR reasons, but let's dress it up a little as reputational um, uh, and follow the leader in the sector and not, let's not get caught out. There were some ethical considerations um, by some companies, but it's been striking how few of the companies have exited have explicitly cited human rights uh, or an attack on the international rules-based order as the reason for their exit. And that's uh, one of the missions of B for Ukraine uh, is to make these companies more conscious and responsible actors by stating explicitly their reasons for exit as well as for accelerating the exit of others. So about 40%, and there's been a war over the data um, as there often is in, in such controversial context, but about 40% of over the, the 3,000 uh, foreign companies that are operating in Russia uh, at the time of the invasion have announced their withdrawal or suspended their activity. About another 40% remain in Russia with less than 10% having exited completely. Another cut at the numbers, and again, there's a, some discrepancies, and I, we, some of us worry that we are sometimes mixing apples and oranges with the analysis, but um, over 1,700 companies, foreign companies remain operating in Russia, but f uh, over 1,400 are, have been taking, are taking active steps to leave. That's another way of slicing and dicing uh, the numbers here. The narrative until the last couple of months had been focused on the outside, uh, acknowledging and, and applauding this exodus. What we've been doing for B for Ukraine is also to acknowledge and applaud the exodus of Western companies from Russia, but to put the focus at least as much, even more on the other side of the ledger of those companies remaining and to make the case both generally and sectorally and sector specifically and company specifically why companies still in Russia can leave. So 
we've wrestled with these issues. Um, we, it would be wonderful to look at this problem in purely political and moral terms and to say, out, and to expect that buttons are pushed and exits are made. It's a little more complicated. There are indeed legal and even ethical complexities uh, in addition to the moral and political certainties that should argue for the exit of foreign companies from Russia. The legal, there are legal and ethical uh, complexities that have to be addressed. They can't be simply dismissed. Above all, the safety, the security of the Russian employees of, of foreign enterprises operating in Russia. Uh, there are contractual obligations, there are bankruptcy strictures for companies that, that, that try to shut down or claim bankruptcy. There's concerns over nationalization and expropriation. There's the difficulty of find, finding um, a buyer uh, and sometimes those buyers um, represent interests, uh, whether oligarchs or not, that are seen close to the Kremlin, close to Putin directly. Um, and you know, one has to ask reasonably whether uh, selling to such Russian interests uh, is a, a net positive. Um, there are legal barriers to exit. There's now an exit tax um, that's being imposed that goes right to the Russian treasury and therefore by definition at least indirectly funds the war machine, the war effort, the killing of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers as well as the Russian conscripts put into the trenches. Um, so these are legal and ethical complexities to be not to be dismissed but to be addressed. Where we have little patience um, are for the companies that simply cite such legal or even ethical complexities and assume that they're impossible to, that they're insurmountable. And to us, that's really a, a unacceptable uh, position. Um, you know, our view, our base view, baseline view here is that companies remaining in Russia are fundamentally complicit, at least indirectly, in the war effort. Uh, most of all, by paying taxes at this point to the, to the regime um, that do fund this war effort. Um, that's the most obvious form of complexity, of, of complicity. There's also the exposure of foreign companies according to Russian law that was invoked last September of 2022 for employees of, Russia, of, of foreign companies to face a, a mandatory conscription. Um, so foreign multinationals are still operating in Russia are in the uncomfortable position of um, the risk of some of their employees being taken out of the workplace and put into the trenches um, in, um, in, in Donbass or elsewhere in, in southern Ukraine. So, and then there are dual use um, technologies and weapons um, and, and those are mostly under sanction at this point but there's still some uh, gaps in the sanctions regime that are the U.S. and others are trying to close. Um, but I do want to mention that and emphasize that there are some legitimate ethical considerations here, uh, ethical and, and indeed political. Um, and one is in the uh, technology realm, the other is in 
pharmaceutical and medical realm. On the technology side, most um, tech exports are under sanctions from US, UK, EU, um, different jurisdictions, uh, particularly the ones that have uh, military applications. But a case was made to the White House and the US Treasury last spring by a coalition of NGOs led by Access Now, uh, which is, uh, stands for Internet Rights uh, uh, and the Wikimedia Foundation, to carve out an exception for Internet service providers on the grounds that from a democracy and human rights point of view, that the last thing we should want to do is to cut off Russian civil society, Russian civilians from the international internet. And in my view, that was a um, reasonable and responsible, indeed essential uh, uh, compromise to make um, in, the, in the service of a greater good. It gets trickier when we get to essential medicines, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, and I, I know of that um, Liz Carmichael is a former um, uh, medic and others perhaps in the audience and um, you know my views of this are blissfully uh, uninformed by any medical expertise but, but informed somewhat by engagement in recent months with two or three of the major global pharma companies which have chosen to stay in um, and they cite essential medicines and there's indeed a list put together by the World Health Organization uh, and one can make a reasonable argument that uh, for human rights and humanitarian reasons, it is necessary, indeed essential, to continue to provide such essential medicines uh, to Russian civilians. There's a counter argument I hear from Ukrainian colleagues who say that responsibility is on the Russian government. They have to do that, the Western companies don't. And for that matter, most of the Western companies that are claiming essential medicines and staying in are also continuing to sell non-essential medicines that are not on the WHO list and, and other medical devices, including over-the-counter uh, uh, items that really cannot be uh, justified as absolutely essential and irreplaceable. But there's some shades of gray when we come to that arena um, where we do have to take into account, in my view, um, the ethical considerations from a human rights and a humanitarian point of view. But then we get to excuses and, and we go from uh, uh, reasonable to, frankly, absurd, in my view, um, rationales. So, Pernod Ricard, um, the international liquor conglomerate, um, uh, produces beef eater gin, which has a little bit of brand resonance in this country in particular. Um, they resumed operations, suspended operations uh, initially after the war and then resumed exports to Russia. I don't think that uh, gin is uh, as uh, refreshing as it is in the spring and summer and tonic or, or otherwise um, is essential. Um, and likewise, Oreos, I mean, Mondelez, I apologize as an American that Kraft took over your great um, brand, uh, a company, you know, Cadbury, that along with Lever Brothers, now Unilever, was the, you know, founding force in late Victorian corporate social responsibility, as paternalistic as it was, but a values-driven company and joined by John Lewis and others later, and now 
Mondelez, um, whatever a computer-generated corporate jargon brand name, and our dear old Oreos are now being sold, sold still uh, in Russia. Not essential, uh, hardly. Um, so, you know, we've uh, taken a very strong stand, in particular with Mondelez, and have frankly gone after them rather mercilessly after engaging with them privately, but to no, no effective end. And then there's the case of Shell, which, like along with BP, led the initial parade out. And I wouldn't give them too much credit because they clearly anticipated there would be sanctions from the UK government and others, but led the parade out in that last weekend um, of February last year. Uh, and now um, Global Witness and The Guardian and Be For Ukraine, our organization, um, for good reasons are going after Shell because they seem to be on the verge of, of, of being rewarded and accepting uh, a billion plus payment uh, from the Russian government as it buys out assets, including the Sokolin II project in the uh, Russian uh, Far East. And the Ukrainian government calls that billion or so payout that has not yet been made, to be fair, blood money, and has uh, demanded that any such payout uh, be transferred to expenditure in supporting a green reconstruction of a post-war Ukraine. So there's different twists and turns here. So I turn now to the third and final um, part of my remarks, and that's to ask what can we learn together from this uh, not well enough understood, in my view, uh, phenomenon of Western business exit from Russia and the, the broader implications. So I, I think, first of all, that Russia's attack on Ukraine has given long overdue impetus to the whole business and conflict agenda, which began to emerge in the mid to late 1990s uh, with initiatives in the UK, the US, uh, the Voluntary Principles on Security and Human Rights, which is the global standard for extractives companies, oil and mining, of how they should work with security forces uh, in conflict zones and many other initiatives. But we've had a whole um, emergence in the converging worlds of, of, of business and human rights, business and conflict um, uh, around human rights due diligence. Uh, and that is the, the notion that companies have a responsibility to do due diligence, to do research and analysis, uh, undertake human rights risk assessments of projects they may consider beginning or projects that they're operating, countries that they're operating in. The first such uh, human rights due diligence, uh, 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 human rights impact assessment, interestingly um, and perhaps surprisingly to some, was commissioned uh, by BP uh, in early 2002 for its uh, West Papua uh, liquefied natural gas project there. Uh, and then that um, became the model for really a whole cottage industry around um, uh, human rights impact assessments. And then uh, the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, some of you are aware of, involved with, uh, led by the late uh, uh, Professor John Ruggie, 
um, produced those UN guiding principles on business and human rights with human rights due diligence as their real operational uh, heartbeat. So what we're seeing now is that the, this invasion of Ukraine has really given impetus to human rights due diligence, particularly in conflict settings. And a lot of good work has been done, including in the UN system, uh, the UN development program, uh, just in the last year of refreshing and updating and refining uh, ways of going at um, uh, human rights due diligence. I, as somebody who spent some years early in my career in the belly of the beast of corporate America um, and has been in and out of um, corporate uh, offices and, and C-suites for decades, um, I can say that we need to meet these companies partly where they are. They've been doing political and geopolitical risk analysis for half a century since the 1970s, but still too few do human rights due diligence. We need a fusion of that geopolitical human rights due, uh, analysis and human rights due diligence. Such a fusion may have uh, made companies realize that Putin's seizure of parts of Donbass and indeed of Crimea was the beginning of the invasion, that the invasion didn't start just on the 24th of February, 2022. I can tell you though that um, sleep is being lost um, and headaches are being experienced in the C-suites and corporate boardrooms uh, in Japan and Australia and across the Atlantic and elsewhere around the world uh, worrying about you know what, um, a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, and that is um, on everyone's minds, uh, at least in the corporate and investment world. So I want to um, conclude here by suggesting, um, as I've been trying to over the last year as somebody who looks to events that have, that crystallize certain challenges and opportunities that, that may also galvanize new ways of thinking and acting. And at the risk of being naive, I would like to think, like to think that this foreign, mostly Western, business exit is incomplete as it is um, from Russia, can build a bridge to something I call for what it's worth, a new notion of geopolitical corporate responsibility. Now that sounds fanciful, but if we just step back and think about this international rules-based order, which is on sort of life support um, of rule of law, uh, of reaching decisions through global institutions, through the UN, and respecting those rules as our own two governments, the US and the UK, certainly did not in 2003, whatever else we felt about Saddam Hussein and his ghastly treatment of his own people, but that invasion was a flagrant violation of the UN Charter and gave some sucker to later to, to Putin. We have to be mindful of inconsistencies and hypocrisies, but there is a rules-based order still, and there have been no greater beneficiaries of it over the last three quarters of a century than these great big multinational corporations who depend on that rules-based order for trade and investment, for, um, uh, for rule of law within countries. There's a good reason why the UN 
uh, uh, Sustainable Development Goals has uh, Goal 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions as underpinnings of sustainable and profitable, responsible business environments for companies and investors. So I hope that a new geopolitical corporate responsibility would compel at least some companies, some leading companies, to think about their reliance on this rules-based order, to find ways to support its tottering, tattered remnants, um, to support the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, to support what I call the shared space that should link business and civil society, the shared space of rule of law, accountable governance, civic freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and for business also to recognize its fundamental responsibilities working through the international community and its battered institutions to address the inequality crisis, the climate crisis. What we can't do is go back to business as usual with the international rules-based order with all the shots called by the Permanent Five in the UN and you know, Pax America. It's gotta be a rebalanced, refocused, south-north, east-west, but there've gotta be rules of the road. And I just you know, have to say that I've um, become more and more as respectful as we all need to be and are, I hope, uh, try to be of other views of you know, the dismissal of certain standards is just Western standards. Well, the UN Declaration on Human Rights is a global standard, uh, forged as much or more by people from now Global South countries as it was by Eleanor Roosevelt, whose statue is up here um, in Mansfield College outside the new Bonavero Institute of Human Rights. It's global. The ILO, International Labor Organization, core labor standards, you know, for no forced labor, no child labor, anti-discrimination, for God's sake, global standards, not Western. Global standards, we need business to embrace these. And finally, I would just say that business shares a responsibility to work for peace. Governments, though, in civil society, we share a responsibility to make business accountable. It's not just on them, it's on us. And I've thought long and hard about this over you know, my work over many years of trying to engage with these huge concentrations of power, corporate power, and it's up to us, not them, just them, how they conduct themselves in the most vital matters of war and peace, of inequality, of, of the climate crisis. I hope that this conflict will reinforce the conviction that we all have the moral, political, and economic agency to work for peace and human rights, all, including business. And I think this conference will remind us. Thank you.